Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be doing Alma 5-7. through And this is basically two sermons where Alma is talking to two groups of people. The first sermon is to the people in Zarahemla. It's Alma 5. It's really big. It's loaded with questions. The second sermon will be in Alma 7, and that will be to the people that live in a city called Gideon. And so without further ado, let's just get started. So Alma 5... He's talking to these people, and it's they're in a bit they're in a rough state, aren't they, Bryce? Yeah, it's really fascinating to compare the two sermons and the spiritual preparation of both cities. I encourage everyone to notice that. Notice what Alma says to Zarahemla, and notice what state they're in, and then notice what Alma says to Gideon, and what state they're in. At the very beginning of chapter seven, he'll kind of describe the difference between the two cities. He doesn't say that to Zarahemla, but he does to Gideon. He says, "Well, here's what's going on in Zarahemla, and why I had to say." what I had to say. And so it's fascinating that our own spiritual preparation causes the prophet to give very different messages. And so let's start with the message to the people in Zarahemla. And, and they're I, definitely messed up. They are definitely messed up, but it, it's a very common mess up. It seems to me like, it, I think the essence here is in verse 26. Um, I think this kind of encaptures to me what Alma's trying to accomplish in Zarahemla. So he says, if you have experienced, so this, again, this is Alma 526, if you have experienced a change of heart, and if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? So what seems to have happened in Zarahemla is people who were once excited about the gospel have kind of lost the flame. And Alma seems to say, how do we rekindle that flame? Now, Mike, isn't that human nature? I mean, isn't that so common among human beings that we get really, really excited at first, and then as we kind of fall into a routine, as it's something we do over and over and over again, it kind of becomes a routine, and we lose that thrill and that excitement. It's no matter how excited we are about something. I remember my son went to a game one time, and he said, Dad, these are professional athletes. They're doing the dream. And he said, but I can tell they're just kind of going through the motions. Isn't that fascinating? They, they've accomplished this major thing, and you know that when they first got to the NBA, they were absolutely thrilled. But then routine, I mean, take sacrament in our homes, for example. Um, when we very first, do you remember the very first sacrament you held in your home when the pandemic started? For my family, it was a sacred experience. It was somber. It was holy and everyone felt the significance of it, and it was very, very memorable. <laughs> and then, how about last week? I don't know if your family's like mine, but sacrament at home has become routine, and now we're dealing with all the distractions of being at home. My youngest kids were extremely distracted. It wasn't new at all, and my wife and I were just commenting that the thrill and the excitement of sacrament at home has kind of faded. And what, do we, what are we going to do to kind of rekindle that flame? One more example. My son went to a movie with me one time, and we saw it. And you know those movies where they just make a bunch of them? And I said, what did you think? And he was like, eh, it was okay. And then I said, okay, now I want you to imagine you've never seen a movie before. And this is the first time you've ever seen a movie. And he's like, that's a good point, Dad. Then it was amazing. I, I, there's a term for, the, for it called the habituation. We just get so used to the same thing. And I think that's just how we are. And I don't know why we're that way. Maybe it's just the nature of life, right? But in other words, these guys are kind of in a rut, aren't they? Yeah, and, and we've done that with our spirituality. So if any of you, or maybe all of us to some degree out there, have allowed the gospel or the flame of the gospel or the excitement that we once felt to kind of become routine and dwindle. This is Alma chapter 5. That's the purpose of Alma 5, is to try and rekindle that flame and get it burning again. So Alma has two approaches here. He's, he he kind of puts the saints in Zarahemla through two series of questions. The first set of questions is, do you remember? And he asks that question repeatedly, do you remember? So we're going to talk briefly about the power of remembering to rekindle the flame. And then the second set of questions are, can you imagine? Meaning, put yourself in judgment seat. What would scare you if today were the judgment seat? 
and then let's fix those things. So he's going to do, do you remembers and can you imagine? So let me set this up. He starts by talking about himself and his father and the priests of Noah and the people of Noah and then Limhi and how they were delivered. And then again, they were in bondage and how they were delivered. And so now verse six, three times. He asks this question, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Again, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy? And then one more time, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance one more thing? And Alma is simply asking, do you remember? So think about, go through, in your mind, go throughout the scriptures and ask yourself the question, what is the effect of remembering? Let me just show you a couple. Let me bookend the Book of Mormon. If you'll go to the title page of the Book of Mormon, the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, where Moroni seems to write why the book was written. You know that two-paragraph one? And then in the second paragraph, he says, this book was written to show unto the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers. In other words, one of the main purposes of the Book of Mormon is to help you remember that God has done great things in the past. And remembering that, we open ourselves up to more revelation from the Lord. Remembering what God has done in the past opens us up to do more in the future. Now, bookend that and go all the way to the end of the Book of Mormon, to the promise, the Moroni's promise in chapter 10, verse 4, that we read all the time. But I think a lot of us forget verse 3. I would exhort you that when you should read these things, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them, that you would remember, remember how merciful the Lord has been to the children. Isn't that fascinating how often the Lord calls on us to remember? Now, if you look at the sacrament prayer, Every single week we come to sacrament, and four times throughout that prayer, it uses a word remember or remembrance. We do this in remembrance. Four times. And then if you really look closely at the prayers, notice the difference between the prayers. When we bless the bread, we bless and sanctify it so that the people who partake promise three things. Taking of the bread is a promise to do three things. Number one, we show our willingness to take upon us the name of Christ. Number two, we always remember him. And then number three, we promise to keep his commandments. So his name, remember him, keep his commandments. And then we get to the prayer on the water, which represents his blood, his greatest of sacrifices. And every priest will tell you that the prayer on the water is shorter And the reason it's shorter is when we get to the promises, we drop two of the promises, and we only promise one thing. We don't promise to take upon us his name, and we don't promise to keep his commandments. We do that in the bread, but not in the water. The only thing we promise when we partake of the water of the sacrament is that we always remember him. That is a significant message, to always remember him. And what happens when we remember him? Just one more scripture. If you'll go to Helaman, how many times in the book of Helaman does the word remember appear? And I think maybe one of the things we should point out in Helaman is that it is important that we set reminders, that we actually set ourselves a reminder that will force us to remember. Now, we do that with our phones. We do this with our day. I don't know about you, but when I have an important meeting, I set a reminder an hour before the meeting so I don't forget the meeting. In the olden days, we used to write things on our hands. I don't know if you did that, Mike, but man, I did that all the time. If I needed to remember to take something home from school, I'd write it on my hand. I think that's why sticky notes have become a thing. I think the guy who invented sticky notes... Used to write on his hand. He's capitalized on this whole idea, right? There's a reason why that guy's made money. And so we, we physically set reminders. Well, notice what Helaman does to his sons, Alma and Nephi. He says, I gave you your names. This is Helaman 5. Verse 6, I gave you your names as a reminder so that every single time you hear your name, you'll remember. There is power in remembering. 
And then to culminate, look at how many times he says, oh, remember, remember. Verse 9, oh, remember, remember. Verse 10, remember. And then we get verse 12. And now, my sons, remember, remember. So I think if the flame has dwindled in your life, or if you've noticed that it seems to be dwindling in the lives of your children, how do we go about remembering? What do you do to set a reminder I mean, the sacrament is supposed to be a reminder. And even then, that's a fascinating concept. What are we supposed to remember during the sacrament? When Jesus first initiated the sacrament, there's a fascinating Joseph Smith change in the book of Mark. In Mark's version of the institution of the sacrament, the Savior says the following. This is JST Mark 14, 20 and 21. And as they did eat, Jesus took and bread and blessed it and break it and gave to them and said, take and eat. Behold, this is for you to do in remembrance of my body. For as oft as ye do this, ye will remember this hour that I was with you. Now, I know in other places he tells about remembering his body, remembering his blood, And we're supposed to remember his sacrifice. But think about what he's saying in that moment. I want you to remember the times I was with you. Now, I wasn't there back in Jerusalem when he instituted the sacrament. But the Savior has been with me many times throughout my life. And the purpose of the sacrament, at least one of them, is to remember the times the Savior has been with me. It's as if he says, do you remember that? Do you remember Quautla Bryce? Do you remember that night? He did with, with Oliver Cowdery, right, Mike? Right. Do you remember when Oliver Cowdery's been blessed and then the Lord says, hey, if you want further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me. In other words, remember the time I answered your prayer. I like the context of that because I think what Oliver wants to know is, am I doing what I should be doing? Is this where I'm supposed to be at? So section six of the Doctrine and Covenants, and he wants a witness. He wants a witness of the work. In verse 21, it says, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I am the same that came into my own, and my own received me not. I am the light which shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Verily I say unto you, if you desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that you might know concerning the truth of these things. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? And now behold, if you received a witness, for I, if I have told you things that no man knoweth, have you not received a witness? And behold, I grant unto you this gift, if you desire of me, to translate even as my servant Joseph. And so, yeah, I think that what he's asking for is, I would like a witness. Joseph prays. Joseph doesn't know that Oliver had this spiritual experience, and yet God knows. And God says, well, just cast your mind upon remember. That, that experience. Another one that I really like is the experience in the book of John. I'm reading intently John right now, going through the, the language. There's some pretty good stuff in here on being born again that we're probably going to talk about too in Alma 5, but there's this really cool line in here where there's a question that comes up when, in John 1 where they're picking up apostles, they're picking up followers. And we read in verse 40 of John 1, it says, one of the two which heard John speak followed him, and was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found his brother Simon, and he said, we found the Messiah, which being interpreted as the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which by interpretation is a stone. And then verse 43 The day following, Jesus would go into Galilee and found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathanael asked the the classic genetic fallacy. And the genetic fallacy is basically like, well, I can't believe it because it comes out of this place. If it comes out of somewhere I don't like, then... It can't be true, right? And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. And so Nathaniel comes and meets Jesus. And Jesus says to him in verse 48, he says, before Philip called thee, when you were under the fig tree, I saw thee. 
And Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. The way I read that text is, I think Nathanael had a spiritual experience when he was praying under the fig tree, and the way John portrays Jesus as, he is God on earth, and he knows about this experience that Nathanael had. And he says, Nathanael, I saw you when you were praying, when you were reaching out. And that, that one connection was enough for Nathaniel to say, I know. I know who you are. And I like that. I like that idea of... Remember your spiritual experiences. Because it opens up new ones. Yeah. Remember what he's done in the past, and that opens the door to new experiences. That's how you rekindle the flame. If some of your children are dwindling, if the flame is dwindling, ask them to remember. Invite them to remember. Ask them questions that will cause them to remember. I served my mission in Mexico. As soon as we baptized, we couldn't retain them. And so every ward I served in, we just had hundreds of people on the rolls that didn't attend church. And so everywhere I went, the very first thing I did in every single area is I got a list of the ward and checked off the people who attended sacrament regularly. And then we just went out and found the people who had been baptized into the church but were not attending sacrament. And I discovered a very easy way to get them excited again about the gospel. We just simply said, what experience did you have that brought you into the church in the first instance? Tell us about your spiritual experience that brought you into the church. And they would start to remember. And they would remember how they felt. And the flame would be rekindled. And quite often they would come back to full activity in the church because they remembered But it's just that natural tendency to just let it go, and then the flame dies out. So I think we talked about this with our podcast on 1 Nephi 8 and 11, but do you remember how we talked about how some people eat the fruit, and they stay at the tree, and some people eat the fruit, and then they leave? And what was the difference? I think in verse, if we went back and said, what's the difference between the people who never left? There's that phrase, continually holding fast. It's got to be that some people got excited enough to get to the tree, but then fell into this, eh, and eventually they're pulled away from the tree. But the ones who continually hold fast, who are constantly rekindling that flame, are the ones that are never pulled away. And so I submit to all of you the power of remembering that the sacrament is supposed to be a reminder of times we've spent with Jesus, the marvelous things that the Savior has done in our life. Because as we remember what he's done in the past, it opens us up to things in the future. Why in the world would the Book of Mormon begin and end with that concept? Remember the great things that God has done. So there's one. There's one thing that Alma addresses in Zarahemla is the, do you remember? Will you take time in your life to remember all that he has done? Walking down that path of remembering his blessings is a tremendously helpful thing to rekindle that flame. But now the second approach. So starting in verse 15, he gets a whole series of questions. 15, he says, do you look forward? 16, can you imagine? 17, do you imagine? 18, can you imagine? 19, can you look up to God at that day? Verse 20, can ye think? Verse 22, how will any of you feel? And then he kind of picks it up in 27. If you're not doing this, could you say in that day that? Verse 28, if you haven't been stripped of pride, you're not prepared to meet God. Verse 29, if you are not stripped of envy, you're not prepared. So it's this idea of, can you imagine being in front of God? So let's talk briefly about the difference between a midterm exam and a final exam. Now, I know a lot of people grade on midterms, but most college classes, most high school advanced classes, the main part of your grade is how you do on the final, how you do on the final. So what then is the purpose of a midterm? Really, the purpose of the midterm is to say, how are you doing? How are you doing in this class, and will you do well on the final? So take this midterm and tell yourself if there's some changes you need to make. So Alma is giving the people a midterm exam, and it's very healthy for all of us to take a midterm exam because we're not graded on the midterm. 
We're graded on the final. Don't beat yourself up over the midterm, but use the midterm to make some course corrections. So the point here Alma seems to be making is, let's pretend right now, wherever you are in your life, whatever your age, whatever your spiritual preparation, let's pretend right now, suddenly it's judgment day, and you are standing in front of God himself, and you're going to be judged. Now, if you can picture that in your head, tell me what's scaring you. Well, it's just, it's just not a comfortable thing. I mean, no matter where you are, how many times have we read, even President Kimball would say things like, I'm not worthy, I pray that I can be worthy, because it's the natural tendency, we're all mortals. And there's a great quote where Joseph says, the closer you are to the light, the more you see the, the faults that you have, because we're standing in the light. Which reminds me of a quote by C.S. Lewis, remember that quote? Yeah, so he's going to talk about rats in the cellar. Now, the great thing about this is don't beat yourself up that you've got a rat in the cellar or that you've got a problem. So let's suppose the thought of facing God scares you. So let me ask the question, why? Why does it scare you? Well, you're all thinking of something that you don't want to talk about. Now's your chance to know what needs to be fixed between now and the final. So C.S. Lewis, this great quote about rats in the cellar, he just talks about, you know, if you have rats, if you suspect you have rats in the cellar, what do you do? Do you go tiptoeing down the stairs and slowly turn the light on and slowly open the door and then look around? Because you're not going to see anything. You're not going to see a single rat. And then you might conclude that you don't need an exterminator. You don't need to go to the effort to put any traps down. You're fine because there's no rats in the cellar. Well, that's deceptive. What you need to do is sneak down, sneak your hand in, and then flip the light on and the door open simultaneously, and then maybe you'll get a glimpse of a rat. And now you know you have a rat problem. Now you know you have something you need to fix. In other words, putting yourself in that uncomfortable position of pretending I'm facing God and knowing, getting a glimpse of what the rats are. Whatever will, would make you uncomfortable to face God today is exactly what you need to work on. Those are the very things you need to fix. That's the can you imagines. And I know it's scary, but there's a healthiness in having that experience to say, you know what, if I had to face God today, the thing I'd be the most embarrassed about is this. Okay. Well, now you've got some time before you actually face God. Are you going to fix that one thing that you said you'd be most nervous about? Are you going to fix that one thing? Now, don't beat yourself up, which I know is our tendency, Mike. We beat ourselves up because I'm not perfect. I think this is why some people don't like religion, is these questions in Alma 5, I've read these questions differently. So there have been times in my life when I've read them as someone kind of like with my arms folded where I'm like, okay, this is a harangue. These questions are just beating me up. And I see why some people don't like religion because they're like, I just don't want to go and just get beat on and just thrashed. And so I think that we can read it that way or we can read it and say, what can I do differently? I don't know if in this life any of us are ever going to feel comfortable, but I think what Alma's trying to do is, and this is this balance as a teacher, right? You want to, when you teach about Jesus, you want to comfort the afflicted but you also want to afflict the comfortable. And so it's a real challenge. And in this, in this situation, this is my take. I think that the Zarahemlites are a group of mixed people. And a lot of these people are the Mulekites we've talked about before, that maybe they come from generations of they've forgotten God. And then later when we get to Alma 7, it's the city called Gideon, and it's named after the, the head guy that was... Fought against King Noah. Uh, yeah, and killed by Nehor, and Gideon's kind of a hero. He's kind of like an Alma figure, and I think the Gideon people that live in, in that city are... The Limhiites. Yeah, these guys, are they were literally delivered, and so they're going to have a different view on Jesus and salvation, and they're not going to be... They don't need the harangue yeah. as much, and not that it's a harangue. They don't need that can-you-imagine question. They don't need to just say, hey, wait a minute. Can I discomfort you a little bit because there's some things that I know if Judgment Day were today, you would not want to talk about. So can we just start working on those things? And sometimes you just need to kind of say, hey, there's some things that need to be fixed. Yeah, they're kind of just in a different space. And so 
I read these Alma Five questions and I and I get them and I and I think they're good. I think we can we we can definitely misuse them. I think one of the keys that I really like in this and and this is right out of the C.S. Lewis quote with the rats in the cellar. One of the keys is this distinction that's made in verse seven. Notice what it says: Behold, he changed their hearts. He awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoken to God. And so there's this dance, there's this balance. We need to change. We need to come to Jesus, but we must not forget that this is his work and he'll do it. And so at the end of the rats in the cellar quote, there's this great line by C.S. Lewis where he just nails it. And he says, you know, after we figured out there's rats in the cellar and we're working on it, we're going to do this. He says, I cannot by direct moral effort give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God. And so I think what the invitation is by C.S. Lewis and by Alma is, yes, we need to do something, but really what we need to do is open up our hearts to God so that he can work in us, so that he can like change us because... At the end of the day, if I think I'm going to save myself, Bryce, what's going to happen? No way. And so he kind of concludes this whole, after the do you remembers and the can you imagine, he simply sends the invitation. Verse 33 is the invitation. He sendeth an invitation unto all men for the arms of mercy extended toward him, and he saith, repent, and I will receive you. Come unto me, and you shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. You don't have to do it alone. But you do have to make those first steps towards the Savior. You have to join his team. And then once you're on his team, you have Jesus on your team. And no other team's going to beat you because Jesus is on your team. But you have to come unto the tree. I want to geek out just for a minute on the language. So it says, be born again. If you do a word search in the Book of Mormon, there's like seven, five or seven instances where it says we got to be born again. But then there's like 10 where it says we need to be born of God. And to me, the distinction matters. If you read the Greek of John 3, where Nicodemus and John, uh, Jesus are having this discussion, Jesus doesn't say you got to be born again. He says you got to be genethe anothen. And he says it in different ways, the way you decline those words in the Greek. But what that means, he says, is you must be born from above. You must be born from the heavens. What I find interesting, Joseph doesn't know Greek, but both these distinctions are parted out. We have the King James, be born again, which I love. I think it's beautiful, even though that's not what the text says. And then we have this be born of the heavens. And I think they're both the same thing. They're just talking about it differently. So the way I look at it is, and the word to be born is really to become. The the word genethe, it literally means to become. And I think what God is saying to us through Alma 5 in the English and the King James and the Greek, however you want to parse this out, is I've got to connect who I am and what I'm becoming to God and to heaven. And if I do that, I'm doing my part, the heaven's doing their part, God's working in me. But I think sometimes this is just my take on our culture in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, especially amongst those of us that are like third and fourth and fifth generation. We overemphasize what we're supposed to do. And I think sometimes we do that because in traditional Christianity, there's some where the pendulum's way over on the other side where they're like, Jesus is going to do it, and so it doesn't matter what we do. Well, Jesus is going to save me, so it doesn't matter. And I think that's wrong too. And so the pendulum can go both ways. But I think to me, the Book of Mormon, and it's, it's in the Greek, it's this beautiful distinction where it's like, yes, we do it. But God does it too. And think as parents, those of you that are parenting, I think sometimes, you know, you've seen this as a parent, haven't you, where the pendulum goes too far on one way on, on discipline and then too far in the other way of letting them be creative. And the Book of Mormon is doing this dance. I find it beautiful that just as many times as it says be born again, it says be born of God. And to me, I'm going to read that, be born from above. Anyway. And I love how he summarizes it. He says, look, if you'll join Team Jesus, you'll get a wage. All you need to do is join the come and join Team Jesus. We all know what that means. We ought not to overemphasize it. But he says, if you choose Jesus as your shepherd, then you are his sheep and you you get a wage. You get a wage for being his sheep. If you don't choose Jesus, then you're not the sheep of the good shepherd and the devil is your shepherd. And then he says... 
you, verse 42, whosoever doeth this must receive his wages of him, and therefore the wages he receiveth is death. So you get a wage based on the shepherd that you choose. And I think that's what Mike's trying to say here is, come unto Christ, come unto Jesus, and then get him into your life. And then he will do things to you because he's your shepherd. He will lead you to where you need to go because you chose him as your shepherd. He will defend you from the wolves because he's your shepherd. But if you don't choose him as your shepherd, he can't lead you to good water and he can't defend you as well as he could as if you chose him as your shepherd. And that's the idea here is rekindle the flame, come to Jesus, and then receive a wage from him. And that idea goes back to Back in chapter 3, for every, verse 27, for every man receiveth wages of him whom he listeth to obey. And that's kind of the idea is come unto Jesus, and in that dance, he will bring your strength. He will be the one that helps you. But you come and let him be your shepherd. And we become different. We become different people. I love Ezra Taft Benson said this in 1985. He said, can you imagine what would happen with an increasing number of copies of the Book of Mormon in the hands of an increasing number of missionaries who know how to use it and have been born of God? The Lord works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. The world would take people out of the slums. Christ takes the slums out of the people, and then they take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment. Christ changes men who then change their environment. The world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature. And so that we see both. We've got to do what we can, but Christ can change us. But I also like this idea of what Bryce is talking about uh, as far as wages. I will say that, and President Benson said this a couple of times, Christ is going to make more out of our life than we can. This is my experience. I think Christ wants you to do what you're good at. And he wants you to do all the things that make you you that are good. But when we couple what we do with him, it's even better. And so it doesn't have to be a fight. It doesn't have to be, well, I want to do what I want to do. Well, the good things that you want to do, he wants you to do. And so tapping into the heavens, being born from above is that idea of you're becoming this new person, which leads me to the Elder Oaks quote. He gave this in conference uh, 2000 where he says, we must act and think so that we're converted by it, meaning Jesus. The final judgment is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and our thoughts, what we have become. And so becoming to Elder Oaks in that talk is a big deal. And I think that's really what's happening here in Alma 5. The people in Zarahemla, they're just kind of going through the motions. And I think some of them, maybe aren't even going that far. I think some of them are not even there. There seems to be this idea in the text that the church, there's the church people and the non-church people, and the law is you don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to be a member of those that follow Jesus, but the rules and everything are such they're structured in that context. The rules are based on the religion of these people. And if you think about this, if you're from the United States of America or from Great Britain or a lot of these countries in the West, our laws are based on the Judeo-Christian ethic. They come out of these really old documents. And so you don't necessarily have to believe in God if you live in these countries, but the rules that we're trying to govern Western society by come out of these. Well, when more and more people leave those values, when their hearts aren't to, to the Lord... I think we lose freedoms, and I think what Alma sees is he's future-pacing. He sees, hey, if we lose our connection to the heavens, doesn't matter what laws we make. The laws are—it's what's, what's the point? Ben Franklin said something to this. He says, we could do all these, make all these rules and write this republic, but if the people aren't going to be freedom-loving people, if they're not going to be tapped into what they need to be doing, we're not going to be free. And so Alma realizes it's the hearts of the people that really matter. Yeah. I wonder if he's foreshadowing what Captain Moroni will say, that it's as long as we are faithful to God, he will keep and preserve and protect us. And it's only when we lose our faith in God that we lose his protection. We uncover ourselves and we are vulnerable because we have not chosen him. So I just wanted to conclude Alma's sermon to the saints in Zarahemla with a similar 
plea that the Lord makes in the Doctrine and Covenants to the Latter-day Saints. He says in section 78, verses 17 and 18, kind of the same idea here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you are little children, and you have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. You cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. I love that. Choose Jesus as your shepherd. He will lead us along, protecting us, feeding us, picking us up when we fall, because he's our shepherd, and we'll get to the promised land. He'll take us home. Yeah. This story that you just shared reminds me of this dream that President David O. McKay had. And he says, I was in the South Pacific, and he says, I had this dream. He says, I fell asleep, and I saw and visioned something sublime. In the distance, I beheld a beautifully uh, built white city. Though far away, yet I seemed to realize that trees with luscious fruit, shrubbery with gorgeously tinted leaves and flowers and perfect bloom abounded everywhere. The clear sky above seemed to reflect these beautiful shades of color. I then saw a great concourse of people approaching the city. Each one wore a white flowing robe and a white headdress. Instantly, my attention seemed centered upon their leader, and though I could only see the profile of his features and his body, I recognized him at once as my Savior. The tint and radiance of his countenance was glorious to behold. There was a peace about which his seemed sublime. It was divine. The city I understood was his. It was the city eternal, and the people following him were to abide there in peace and eternal happiness. But who were they? As if the Savior read my thoughts, he answered by pointing to a semicircle and then appeared above them, and on which were written in gold the words, These are they that have overcome the world, who have been truly born again. I really do believe this, as if we open up our hearts to Jesus, we're doing what we can, we're becoming new people, Christ will take us home. But I also think it's normal for you, if you're reading some of these questions, to feel a little bit of guilt. Hopefully, though, the feelings will motivate you to feel like, okay, I can do this. I can, I can change this or I can do this. As I prepared for this podcast, reading through the text, it really helped me to soften my heart. And I think that's part of what the Book of Mormon does. Maybe it isn't so much exactly what the words say, but the feelings that we get when we read it. And then later, when we ponder the words that we read, the feelings and the impressions that come upon our heart, I think to me that might be even more important than the words in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, in other words, is kind of, in me, in my estimation, kind of like a liahona to tap into what God wants me to think about and wants me to consider. So let's cross the river. Chapter 6, Alma crosses the river, and he goes to Gideon, which is chapter 7. And he starts by saying, look... I don't, I don't think, I don't sense, I need to talk about the things I needed to talk about in Zarahemla. And he even says, they caused me a whole lot of affliction and sorrow in Zarahemla. So clearly, you know, he had to do a little bit more heavy-handed and push them a little bit further. And then he says in verse 7, but now that we don't have to talk about that, we get to talk about the most important thing of all. I love that phrase in verse 7 where he says, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. And since we don't have to do that, I don't have to rekindle the flame here. Let's just jump right in. And what Alma reveals in chapter 7 is nowhere in Scripture. It is nowhere in the Bible. Of all the examples of the Book of Mormon restoring plain and precious things that were lost in the Bible, Alma chapter 7 has got to be one of the greatest ones because we gain into an insight into what Christ accomplished through the atonement like nowhere else in Scripture. And I find it fascinating that it comes to the saints in Gideon, not in Zarahemla. It comes to saints who are already striving to get Jesus into their life. So the more you're trying to get the Savior into your life, the more, the deeper that knowledge can become. And so Alma is about to reveal one of the absolute most phenomenal truths about what Christ accomplished. And I'm talking about Alma chapter 7, 
verses 11 and 12. And you show me anywhere in the Bible that even comes close to teaching this concept. This is the gift, one of the gifts of the Book of Mormon. It says, He shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. Now, when we speak of the atonement, we often use the word infinite. And hence, of every kind takes on infinite meaning. So he suffered pain, affliction, and temptation of infinite variety. So, for example, Jesus not only knows what a broken arm feels like, he has, in essence, broken his arm every possible way you can break your arm. So that no matter how I break my arm, he's done that very thing. He's experienced that very pain, infinite breadth of experience, every single possible human pain he's experienced. And he's also taken it to an infinite depth. He's taken it deeper than you ever dreamed of taking. Your pain compared to his pain is incomparable because his is infinite. But he knows what pain. He took your infinite variety to an infinite depth. If you look at the word afflictions and the things that afflict us, things like depression, he has not only been depressed, he has experienced every single variety of depression from mild to absolutely extreme, infinite, every single variety of depression. His depression, I've seen people so depressed they can't even get out of bed. Can you imagine an infinite depression? So that in every single experience, he knows exactly what you're going through and what you're experiencing. Sickness, In verse 12, he starts with taking upon himself death. So in how many ways? If we apply that same idea, he has taken upon himself death in every way. Every single person's death he's experienced. Everyone, every possible experience he's had with every aspect of the human nature. I don't think we can comprehend exactly how. And Elder Maxwell talked about the awful arithmetic of the atonement. But the way I see it is this, and, and this is just my conception, but it's Isaiah and it's Abinadi when it says, his soul shall be made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And the way I see that is the positive and the negative. I think when Jesus suffered, when his soul was made an offering for sin, he saw all the good and he saw everything else and he, and he felt it. However that is, I don't understand it myself, but however that went down, he experienced it. And I think part of what Alma is doing with this is he's saying, because he's had these experiences, he can actually relate to me. Like, I can never look at Jesus and say, well, you know, Lord, you really don't know what my life's like. I'm a unique circumstance. And he can probably, he'll show me the video and say, well, actually, I think I know what it's like. Or, you know, whoever you are, everybody has a unique circumstance. I think we all think we're the exception. And I think the Savior is going to be held up as Well, no, Jesus understands, and he can judge us, and he'll do it perfectly because he knows. But I just, I can't wrap my brain around it, Bryce. I can't. But the whole reason, I don't know that we need to fully understand it, but we need to fully understand what he can then do. If you go to the very end of 12, because he has suffered every kind of pain and every kind of affliction and every kind of temptation, it's rewarding to me, it's helpful to me to know that he's been tempted in every possible way. So he knows what it's like and why we give in to the temptations. He knows the feeling of being tempted. He knows the weakness and the frailty that we feel. But the reason he's experienced all of these things, verse 12 that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh. That's one thing, a feeling of empathy for us. But then I love the next one, that he may know how to succor, that he may know how, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. He knows how to save each one of us. He knows exactly what each one of us needs. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we're feeling because he has been in that very position. He knows everything that they've gone through. He knows everything that's going on in their head. He can succor us. He can help us. He can push us. He's gone every possible direction. He's walked down every possible path. There is not a path. 
that I am called to walk down that he hasn't already walked down, which means when he walks the path with me, he knows where the pitfalls are, and he knows how to comfort me. He knows what I'm going through. He knows what the path does to the human psyche, and he knows what I need. And when it comes to judgment, he knows exactly how to judge me. No one else could possibly judge us like he can judge us because he has been down every one of those paths. This is a man we can love with all our heart and trust. One of the interesting things about these verses is they do address a huge fight that Christians had for about 300 years. So historically, there's a lot in here, but historically what happened was after Jesus died, and was resurrected, there were groups of Christians that debated, you know, who is Jesus and what does he mean? And there were groups that said, well, God could never really take upon himself a body because God is holy and these bodies are so messy. And so, and they had a label put on them. They were called the docetists, which just means, you know, that it comes from the word dokio, which means to seem like God only seemed to be man. And there are groups of Christians that said, no, he really was man. But then the pendulum went way to the other end, and they, they were called the adoptionists. And they were like, Jesus was only a man. He was a very good man, but he was only a man. And so for 300 years, Christians debated, was he a man? Was he God? Did he suffer? Did he seem to suffer? And Alma 7 just lays it down and says he was both. He was a man, and he knows what it's like to be a man, but he also is a God. He's both. I really like the end of verse 12, where it says that he may know how, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Or like when you went on your mission to Mexico, you spoke to the people after the manner of their language, their language DNC 124. That's the God that we believe in. When the Lord comes to Joseph Smith, he speaks to Joseph Smith in terms that Joseph can understand. And it's this idea of this is who God is. He comes down and meets us where we are. In early Christianity, this was the Logos doctrine. The Logos is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That Word is Logos. Early Christians debated, like, how can this transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful being have any relation with us low mortals? And so for years they debated and they thought, well, there must be some kind of glue that glues the heavens to, to mortals and makes the cosmos have order. And for years, these Greek philosophers debated on this and they came up with this idea that, well, there must be this logos or this reason or this, this logical way to put things together. And to me, this is Jesus. He is holy but yet he totally knows what it's like, like Bryce said, to have depression. Or even though he never had a bone broken, John makes that distinction and says, hey, the Lamb of God, he calls him the Lamb of God over and over again, and he says there was no bone broken in him. And to John, that's a big deal, because the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, couldn't have a bone broken, couldn't have a blemish. In fact, John even goes so further as to make the point to tell you that Jesus had a robe that didn't have a seam in it. Now think about that. If you lived in 33 AD, you don't just go buy a shirt at the store that doesn't have a seam in it. You had to make it in a, a round loom. You had to. This was an expensive piece of cloth, and John's doing that to say Jesus was the great high priest. The high priest had a robe with no seam. The Lamb of God never had a bone broken. And so somebody could read these in the Gospel of John and say, how can Jesus relate with me? And what Alma's saying is, yeah, but he does know. And I, I don't understand the math. How can someone who's never broken a bone understand what a broken bone is like? But He's never broken a bone, and yet he's broken every single bone in every possible way. Just, How do you do that? I don't know. I, I, I will say this. In my life, I've had a few painful experiences. I'm just going to get into my health history really quick on one thing. In 2013, I had a dissection in my neck. And long story short, I, the only way I know how to describe it to you guys is it's like a bomb went off in the back of my head. And for three years, I was in this brutal pain. And all I can tell you is it like changed my life on so many levels. And one thing I learned was I learned a little bit of empathy for people who have pain. And that, that was just like one thing. And I remember reading almost 7-Eleven and thinking, how could he know what that's like? But yet I just, I have faith in it. I have faith that Alma's right. 
So I love where Alma goes next in this after he talks about Jesus and stirs up our faith and rekindles that flame. He says, now, what do you do now? And I, li- I would like to think that hopefully after listening to a podcast or going to church or reading a great book or a powerful prayer, the question is, okay, what do you do now? Now that your faith has been stirred up, what do you do now? So in verse 15, he says, I say unto you, come and fear not and lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you, which doth bind you down to destruction. Come and go forth and show unto your God that you are willing to repent of your sins and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments and witness it this day by going down into the waters of baptism. In other words, Show the Lord that you're on his team. Make a commitment. Bind yourself and make a commitment. This is why we have the sacrament every single week. It's a chance to say, Lord, I'm on your team. I'm, I'm with you. Where do I sign? Because I am, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be better. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do better. And it's that. Will you recommit? I like how you made the connection to sacrament because it doesn't say sacrament in verse 15. But here's the thing. I think that's how we contextualize it. And if you didn't hear the podcast we did last time on baptism at the end, at the very end, we answer a question about baptism. What I think is happening here, these people are faithful. These are, these are the good guys. Like, like Bryce said, these are the Limhite colony. They've probably already been baptized. And yet... He invites them to make a covenant and enter into the water of baptism. What I, this, is, this is what I think is going on. These guys get baptized all the time. Getting, ba- getting baptized and getting rebaptized was to them what taking sacrament is to us. Now, I can't prove this, but I think historically that, that's what was happening. That was ha- what I think was happening in John's community in the New Testament is they just made commitments, and then they would be baptized, they would be immersed. This is what happens in our Latter-day Saint history. I remember the first time reading this when I was young, reading about the historical narrative of how we would get baptized all the time. The people that get baptized on April 6, 1830, get rebaptized. Many of them get rebaptized multiple times. When the saints get to the Valley of Salt Lake in 1847, they recommit to Jesus and get baptized. And then in 1857, I love this, Brigham Young goes on a tour and he sees these people herding sheep and he's like, man, you guys use foul language. We got to get these guys rebaptized, recommitted to Jesus. By the way, some people say the only language sheep understand is profanity. But uh, Brigham's like, we've got to recommit. And so they got rebaptized. But today we take the sacrament. So Bryce just went right to sacrament there. But I think that's really interesting that it says, you guys got to go get baptized, but yet these are the Gideon people. These are the good guys. Here's how the Lord words it in the Doctrine and Covenants, and think about our normal Sabbath day. So verse 8, he says, and now behold, I give unto you a commandment that when you are assembled together, you instruct and edify each other, that you may know how to act and direct my church, how to act upon the points of my law and commandments, which I have given unto you. And thus ye shall become instructed in the law of my church. Now, isn't that why we go to church? Isn't that why we sit in sacrament meeting and listen to the speakers? And that's why we go to priesthood, and that's why we go to Sunday school and in Relief Society, to be instructed in the law of the church and be sanctified by that which ye have received. And then I love this last phrase, and ye shall bind yourself to act in all holiness before me. In other words, if you have been motivated to change, if you have been stirred up, if the flame of your faith has been rekindled, then bind yourself to act in all holiness. Whether that's a silent prayer that you say, Lord, I'm in, or whether that's an ordinance like a baptism for someone who's never been baptized, as we do it today in the church, or if it's someone who has been baptized, it's the sacrament. Or maybe you just simply go to the temple tomorrow because you're feeling stirred up today. But when that flame is kindled, do something that binds yourself to act in all holiness. So Alma, at the end of this great talk about Jesus, where he pours out truths nowhere to be found in in the Bible, he says, okay, if this has stirred you up, bind yourself. So I would encourage you every single time something or someone or you yourself stir up that faith and you feel that passion. In the words of Alma to those people in Zarahemla, if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love and you're feeling it again, bind yourself. Tell the Lord that you're committed 
and then move forward. That's what we do day in and day out. We just recommit ourselves every time we're stirred up, and that's what it's like to be on Team Jesus. That's good. Okay, probably the only other thing I really want to touch on just briefly is verse 10. We need to, this is, this verse is used by critics of the church to, they try and prove that the Book of Mormon is false. They think this is evidence that the Book of Mormon is not divine scripture. Because in verse 10, it predicts that Jesus will be born at Jerusalem, in the land of our forefathers. And so they use this verse to and kind of throw it in our face to say the Book of Mormon's false because Jesus was not born at Jerusalem. And yet, Mike? Yeah, yeah. One of the first anti-Mormon books was written by Alexander Campbell, and it was called Delusions. And he basically says this. He's like, Joseph got it wrong. This is a huge error. The Book of Mormon can't be true because Jesus, we all know, was born in Bethlehem, which is close to Jerusalem, but it's not in Jerusalem. The text says at the phrase at Jerusalem or the land of Jerusalem, as used there, the land of Jerusalem, that phrase is nowhere in the Bible or the Apocrypha or any of the literature in Joseph's day. And yet there were a group of letters called the Amarna letters that were discovered, and that is a term that was used by the overlords in the Levant for that area. It was called the land of Jerusalem. And this stuff was discovered 100 years after Joseph's dead. Uh, essentially, does it prove the Book of Mormon's true? No. But it shows that the idea of the land of Jerusalem was a phrase that was used in this time period, even though it's not in the Bible, even though it's not in the extra-biblical literature of Joseph's day, it was discovered. I kind of like it. This is just me. Notice what it says in verse 10. He shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious, and a chosen vessel, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, and bring forth the Son, yea, even the Son of God. I, I like this for a, a couple reasons. One of them is the author, you know, Mormons editing this sermon, but maybe this is right out of the sermon. Essentially, notice what it says, that he will be born of Mary at Jerusalem. Well, if I'm Alma and I'm talking to a group of people on the other side of the world, are they even going to understand what Bethlehem is? But Jerusalem something they can kind of pinpoint. And so I kind of like that. You know, I just don't think Bethlehem would have any meaning to these guys. So it shows on another level the historicity of the text. Anyway, I kind of like it. It's kind of cool. And not only that, but it kind of is another example of a prophet speaking to his people in language that his people will understand. Not necessarily the Latter-day Saints in, or the people in the year 2020 who knows what Bethlehem means, but they don't. Bethlehem doesn't mean anything to them. It's like people would ask me in the mission field, where are you from? And I, if I say South Jordan, they have no idea where South Jordan is. But if I say I'm from Salt Lake, oh, I know where that is. I know where Salt Lake City, Utah is. And so I, I think it's another example of God speaking to people according to their language, not necessarily according to someone else's language. And that's what he does. God speaks to us in our own way, our own experience, in our own, in our own way, in our own experience. And then back in verse 12, according to our own infirmities. That's the God that we worship. I just love it. I love believing in a God who meets us where we are. I love the end of verse 16 where it says, if you do these things, everything we talked about in verse 15, and it says, I say unto him, yea, he will remember that I have said unto him, he shall have eternal life if we do these things. And so that's my belief. I just, I know I'm not going to get there of my own efforts. I know that I'm not good enough. And I know that if I just open my heart to Jesus, as we've talked about, uh, he'll take me home because Jesus knows who I am and he knows what it's like. And I just got to trust him. He'll take me home. So That's where he's going to take me. He's going to yeah. take me to eternal life. If he's my Savior, if I choose him as my Savior, that's where we're going. I'm not alone in the path, but that's where I'm going is to eternal life. So that's Alma 5 through 7. Next time we will do Alma 8 through 12. The city of Ammoniah, which is a wonderful and yet a horrible experience because we get to introduce ourselves to a wonderful man named Amulek who is so wonderful because he's so normal. I love when he says, I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. So I love Amulek, but unfortunately, we're going to watch faithful women and children burned in fire, and we'll begin to ask some questions. Why does God sometimes destroy cities? Why does he destroy? And that's the city of Ammonai. Some great lessons coming up. 
So with that, we thank you for listening. And I want to do a shout out to a couple of people that have really helped us. A shout out to Jeff Harmon for all the, the technical things that he's helped us with. Adam Bradley with the website and Sonia for the editing that she does. She does so much. So we thank you for all of your work. And we also thank you, the listeners. We would not be having a podcast if no one listened. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and your positive comments. And hopefully we'll get through this pandemic and we'll get back to normal. I just want normal to happen. Don't you, Bryce? Yep, I do. Okay, we'll see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.